Hi, and welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science Podcast, where we look at how behavioural and social sciences are being used in the real world to help change the public's health for good. My name's Stu King, and I'm the host of the show, and my guest this month is an Antipodean social marketing expert with experience from the practical world of marketing, as well as bridging the gap between academia and real-world interventions to change people's behaviour for good. So, a perfect guest for this show. Professor Sharon Rundle-Thiel is a social marketer and behavioural scientist. She's the founding director of Social Marketing at Griffith, which is the largest university-based group of social marketers in the world. She's the founding co-editor of the Journal of Social Marketing, which is one of the world's leading behavior change journals. She has led projects that have changed behaviors for tens of thousands of people in areas including health, the environment, and for complex social issues. Sharon has led programs that have increased healthy eating, changed adolescent attitudes to alcohol drinking, reduced food waste, increased dogs' abilities to avoid koalas, and many, many more. She's published more than 150 books, book chapters, and journal papers, and has won key awards, including the Philip Kotler Social Marketing Distinguished Service Award. Now, I want you to spend the next 30 seconds or so doing us a favor. I want you to subscribe to the show right now if you, if you haven't already. I want you to leave a review and rate the show. That would be awesome if you can do that right, right now in the next 30 seconds. But the biggest thing that I want you to do is to share this podcast with a friend or colleague that you think will like it. So I won't delay you any further. If you could do that for 30 seconds, that would be fantastic. We really appreciate it. Without any further delay, we'll head over to the show. Okay, Sharon, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. No worries. And it's been, it's been a long time getting here, actually. Me, Sharon and I have been, have been conversing back and forward and trying to get a date for ages. I'm really, really glad that we've been able to get together, obviously virtually, because you're in um, Australia. So um, not sure what time is it for you there, uh, Sharon? Uh, this afternoon, 4.14 p.m. So right at the end that's of our working day. Not too bad. And right at the beginning of ours, 7.14 here. So that, that's good. That's a good start. So Sharon, you are the founding director of the um, social marketing at Griffith University. Um, and I, we've had people from marketing on before. We've had a, a fellow Australian in, in the form of Adam Ferrier on the show, uh, who's a, a, a consumer psychologist and marketing expert. Um, but I wondered why, if you could start by telling us what the difference is between marketing and social marketing. Okay, so marketing, if I use the big umbrella term, is applied across any form of, for, whether it's a commercial outcome or a social outcome. And mm. our whole field of social marketing was sort of, born when Philip Kotler said, well, hang on, marketing can be applied to ideas and, and social issues. And so growing into the discipline and making that decision to move away from being a commercial marketer to a social mm. marketer has inevitably meant that there are differences. Um, when I was selling commercially, it was usually faster and shinier and prettier and or cheaper. And when yeah. I'm selling something socially, well, actually, usually it's the equivalent of saying, Please get off your couch tonight where you're sitting there with your nice warm cup of tea, having a beautiful piece of chocolate and watching TV. Mm. And maybe you could go outside and do some running and get really sweaty and, and it might be cold in some parts of the world or, or super hot if you're here in Brisbane. And, and yeah. frankly, it's not a nicer sell. So you have to be a lot more creative and it's more about swapping what people do rather than just moving them within one category and saying, here, yeah. try this shiny product over this one because it's better for these reasons. Um, so marketing itself is a field that 
is also, I think, still in its infancy in some respects, but it's as old as time in that markets have always existed and people come together to exchange is the, the core principle. But basically you give me something and you get something in return and it's, it's mutually beneficial. So we both win and get something out of it. Yeah, and I suppose a lot of your work as well, and, and um, I suppose ours as well, we, we use social marketing as well in, in um, busybodies and in, in weight management and behavior change, um, is not just limited to one-time actions like change brand to you know Purcell or whatever other other washing you know other washing powders are available but but it's it's often continuous change that you're looking for as well isn't it through the through the lifestyle changes that you're talking about yeah. um which is very very different i suppose um but why don't we take a step back and um just sort of understand a bit more about your journey sharon if you could tell us a bit about your journey to where you are now you said you started in marketing I did. So I actually started in the world of um, fast moving consumer goods and mm -hmm. straight out of university as a newly minted, excited sort of marketing graduate, it was selling orange juice. Um, and our orange juice was better than the competition because it actually lasted for seven more days. So I had oh. to learn how to sell that and achieve market share and steal it from my competitors. So that was essentially that first job and, and learning the practice and the art of what marketing is, um, mm. overcoming people's objections. So, you know, if you're out there in a, a supermarket in a simple world and back then you're allowed to actually do this and you're allowed to <laughs> move your products around a bit, but today that's actually a bit more controlled. Um, yeah. you, you had a whole heap of strategies that you would use to beat budget and sell more of the products. So. Um, I started off very much in that sort of world and then gradually moved across to do fruit and vegetables and I was promoting those and selling kiwi fruits to families and making fruit exciting for kids um, yeah. and then ultimately went back to university because at that point it was like I'm liking the art and what I do and I just want to study this a little bit more and then the rest of my journey became a bit of history because it was well let's do a master's and that became a PhD. And my PhD was very famously how to sell more wine to more people more often. Um, so great that can't topic. Be a hard sell. No, <laughs> that everyone, can't be difficult. That everyone <laughs> loves to talk about wine, so I didn't have problems getting research respondents or people to actually engage with the work I was doing, and and was sponsored by companies at the time. So Liquorland gave um, my supervisor some cash to sort of support the work because they had a natural interest in learning a mm. bit more about how we might be able to sell more or, or get more. And it was at the end of my PhD as I was trying to figure out maybe, you know, by then moving towards my 30s, what I might want to be when I grow up. Um, yeah. You know, again, the rest became history and it was maybe I could settle into sort of university worlds and teach and research and show others how to do it. Um, and then I had to spend a few more years figuring out exactly what it would be. And one day sort of came to the realisation that maybe social marketing was what that would be. So... I went on to found a centre um, today that's got 40 individuals either studying or working in this space. Um, and we work on social and health and environmental issues, uh, run training. Um, and the other thing I did was help found a journal and, and create more sort of space for the researchers to publish their work. So there's been a few mm. uh, fun things on top of building associations and just help getting more network around this crazy notion of social marketing. and probably teaching more people out there that social marketing is a lot more than just Facebook or some other form of social media. So it's been a, yeah. a fun journey, I have to say. Is that something that people sort of misconstrue quite a lot then? Yeah, I think it's a very natural um, fallback. A lot of people, if I ask them out there, 
what is social marketing um, and you haven't heard more about or, or really been involved actively with what it is, um, it is a natural mistake. Um, and even in our journal, we get a lot of what I call social media submissions. So here's how right. to increase your following in social media space of Instagram or Snapchat and things like that, which just tells me even within the research and university community, um, understanding of what we are is poor, but that was partly because social media kind of sort of hijacked social marketing, even though we were there before they all took yeah. off. So it's been a constant battle in our field. Do we call ourselves social marketing or do you swap your name and say behavior change or something else? Um, mm, and mm. I eventually decided that actually I'm just going to stop having that conversation because I am a marketer by training. I have learned to do it in a social space and I think I am actually a social marketer. So I might as well just own it and keep gunning with it really. Yeah, yeah, fair point. I, I, I think that, I mean, I, I saw, I think I first saw some of the stuff coming out of, um, Griffith when I spoke to one of your colleagues Joy at a um, I think it was the Centre for Behaviour Change digital conference probably two well three years ago maybe something yeah. like that and and ever since then have seen an awful lot of really really innovative great content coming out of Griffith and it sort of made me think if I was going to go and do uh, a PhD in um, social marketing behavioural science something along those lines I would certainly consider trying to sort of um, think about whether Griffith even though it's in Australia would be a great place to do it because there's not loads of places that do social marketing in the same way um, that I've come across at least and and wh why do you think that is why do you think it's not more prevalent in other universities the social marketing sort of term oh look social marketing's got a couple of clusters and centers around the planet um there are a lot of individuals in different institutions so you don't quite get the sort of uh, number of people working in the same space all the time and there are also a few that are operating in sort of like a health space that might actually have a group of social marketers but they might not always call themselves that too and, and that might come back to this whole branding issue behind what social yeah. marketing is or is not um, but I'll get back to the basics like does it really matter if we're a potato or a potato could we just show more people how to do it and get more outcome change and keep talking about that and then saying, you know, by the way, this was social marketing. So building a bit of um, trust, reducing the risk in the approach, because inherently sometimes when you're working with new partners, they're a bit scared when you're not talking about the main outcome. And yeah, like yeah. they're seeking a certain, you know, for example, they want less koalas dying from dog attacks, mm -hmm. but they get really worried when you take the koala out of the equation. And that is a big thing. Like Coke doesn't walk around selling profit. So yeah, we've yeah. known that commercially for a really long time. And as you're operating in the social change space, we have to keep reminding people, one of the reasons you're not getting more uptake in your programs is because you're selling the wrong thing. So how about we sell people something they actually really want? And then that's where the real work begins because teams have to get in and get on ground and figure out what it is that people really want to see. Uh, that's a great point, actually, Sharon, that Coke aren't selling profit. They're not even really selling, in marketing terms, drinks <laughs> all that often, you know, yeah. refreshment. Very often it's actually lifestyle style, you know, marketing messages and, you know, the Christmas is coming. I don't know if they have it in, the, in Australia the same way, but there's a sort of a... A cultural phenomenon I suppose of this uh, holidays are coming actually it's called holidays are coming thing of the trucks driving through with all coke all over the back of them and stuff like that's a cultural icon now in, yeah, in 
They've done a, a fabulous job of like building the mental associations in our minds of Coke mm. is family or fun or good times celebration and just literally giving these beautiful associative links that goes way beyond mere beverage or you know quenching a thirst or getting a bit of a pick me up. Um, mm. whatever it might be that drives some individuals if you really challenge them for why they think they're drinking it. Um, so they're great and, and yeah, marketers. That, yeah, yeah, that rarely is the case in health marketing mm. when we're actually trying to sell the virtues of it and, you know, the benefits instead of thinking outside the box and selling yeah. something completely different. We're usually um, focused on the health and we're talking about yeah. some sort of like stepwise change and why this would be really good for you to actually do. But yeah. in actual fact, maybe what people actually want to hear is more time to build more connections or family time. Um, and we're just getting the cell and the whole reasons why wrong. So if we're not really mm. tuned in to what it is that might move and motivate people, we might frequently be missing the mark, which is why I say the uptake in a program might be really compromised because we're not really going in there with people's main reason for why they would make that move in the first place. Yeah, yeah. That, that's it's super interesting. It makes me think about the um, vegetarian and vegan foods that have sort of taken a huge leap in the last few years. Um, you know, in the way that they're messaging, they, they move from talking about the absence of meat. I mean, they still do say meat free sometimes, but but to, to plant based, for example, um, leveraging the the sort of the eco, um, you know, climate climate. Um, crisis stuff uh, well not not directly but but that sort of push towards being more eco-friendly and also um healthier etc they, they sort of really shifted their their focus from my and i'm not a marketer but i'm interested in it because obviously it's for me one of the things that public health particularly do quite badly is is marketing um and they they seem to have shifted from a sort of a deficit model meat you know there's no meat in this mm -hmm. to a to a sort of a strength-based model of this is this is great plant-based healthy stuff that's that tastes great as well and it wasn't just you know an alternative to meat anymore this is what's beautiful i think about watching commerce at play because it's very good at understanding how people work live and play mm. it taps into hearts and minds and then it follows sentiment so you'll see this gradual shift that evolves over time as it keeps its relevance to people and where they're currently at and you said it well, like a lot of the movement towards vegan and vegetarian is born out of climate change and increasing awareness about our impact as human beings on the planet. And for conscious, considered people, they're thinking about that. And it's now driving choices in what they consume and where and how. Um, and sometimes it can be driving those choices in ways that maybe are compromising the health of their children, for example. So it's getting interesting. Um, with that whole movement teaches us how you can actually stay current and then keep moving with it. So it started off initially as this is a meat alternative because it was yeah. conditioning and, and teaching people, maybe instead of doing this, you could be doing that. And then yeah. as it buys yeah. them in and it's got them and that's where they start to get the maintenance, they start to then build associations for the where, when and how. And, and we've seen a, a stepwise huge change in the number mm. and proportion of people now who are vegetarian and vegan. Um, and that has and to those be things, a good 
they they can't just enter the market, can they? They have to do that ground that groundwork piece of bringing bringing on board the early adopters and showing people how this stuff works. Like electric vehicles, another example. Um, you know, you've got to do that groundwork piece of showing proving the concept uh, having that social proof as well of people the right people and, the, and then the market starts to pick up into much more funky stuff and, and whatever after that as it starts to appeal for, um, to the masses like Oatly is a good example I don't know if they've probably got it over there the oat milk and stuff they've, they've gone for very strong marketing messaging in what they're in their in their packaging and the way that they sell their product as you know they're not apologizing in any way shape or form they're just you know they're saying this is the best thing you can be doing for the planet in terms of um milk alternatives and and i love that i think that's great but they have to do that groundwork first and i think sometimes we think in certainly the, the people that i've worked with in health over the years we think that a marketing campaign is a poster with some stuff on it and it either works or it doesn't don't re sort of really appreciate the amount of time and effort that goes into the yeah. the, the the building of a, an experience and constant engagement with a brand and with a message and and you know we, we talk a lot what well, we use in busybodies we use this uh, google's see think um do care model and and the amount of stuff that we do in C, which is just about putting content out there so people get regular opportunities to engage with the brand in different ways we originally were really disheartened when people didn't sign up, but we, we sort of slowly, very slowly, probably too slowly, came to the realization that that's not the purpose of that sometimes. A lot of marketing is not about a call to action, come and buy this, come and do this. It's about building trust with people. And I think we've got that fundamentally wrong in, in um, health most of the time. But I could go on about this for a while. Um, and, and I want to hear more about you, actually. To be I, honest. So, I could go so, on so, about that same topic because you're left going, the disappointment when funding's put in and it's just mm. starting to get traction and people are just starting to come and actually starting to inquire and starting to move. And then it's like, oh, funding's gone now. Yeah. And it's a shame because you don't just expect something to take off overnight in the commercial world we would be really happy when we converted 2% of people and yeah. that was per annum. And if you were beating those levels, it was like you were way above market rates. Um, so I mm. think sometimes our expectations from the health and social side have been unrealistic. It's like, oh, let's just pop this one campaign out there and change the world in one, one yeah. year. And, and it's not that. It takes a lot of time to actually move and change culture and, and get the uptake to kick in. and. We know from advertising theory that you need multiple ex exposures before you're actually even going to consider an act. So mm. people will be consuming content and sometimes be so unaware of it, but one day it sparks and that's, or it's the different ways and the combination of the effort that really sparks it. So I think I agree with you that um, we've been a bit too slow to know what good conversion rates look like, what good engagement mm. rates are, and to be measuring our success on these faster. Yeah, and I think to manage the expectation of people who are funding these types of, of, of initiatives to say it, it's not, you know, you shouldn't expect sign up or conversion from every piece of activity because it's not designed that way. Yeah. And I think that's something that we misunderstand as well. It took us, you know, 
a while to sort of really get our heads around that, I suppose, as well, to even realize that's a that concept. Some of these pieces you do are the reinforcing and reminding ones that yeah. just keep you in someone's top of mind. Exactly. Versus yeah. the one that says, hey, there's a workshop coming, how about you come? So it's a big exactly. difference in terms of what kicks in and that's where that mental association works so important because if you say something, mm. what are people remembering if they remember because we can't assume they do? Um, and then if they've got that associative link, what is it? And then starting to get that sort of traction that builds. And just sometimes you still can't beat the people passing it to each other. So rather than yeah, us telling sure. them, it's them talking to each other and changing the conversation for us. And even if that comes in the form of um, trying to prioritise testimonials and putting things in, in, in the voices of the customers or, you know, the local communities that you're working with um, as much as possible so that people have that, um, that, that people like me do things like this, as Seth Godin might sort of call it. And, and I think, again, we've, we've under-imported how how powerful that can be and we know everyone knows testimonials are, are important in in health but i don't think we've we've quite grasped how important and how powerful that can be um but sharon i want to move us on to um some of your projects because you've done some really really interesting um projects that i've sort of been looking into over the last couple of months and um a lot of it's around um you know a cleaner environment but there's other stuff in there as well and my favorite was the one you mentioned a minute ago about um get stopping koala attacks on dogs it's not something we have an issue with here to be honest um but but i i think could you just give us a little rundown of a few of the projects that you've been working on and, and you know why they're interesting because I, th I think there's some fascinating projects in there yeah so this week we've uh, launched a pilot campaign and this campaign is all around keeping leaves out of waterways um mm -hmm. So when we were doing a lot of our co-design research in community, people were so sort of shocked and surprised at a leaf is litter because we think it's organic and we think it's breaking down and it's just a natural thing. And to understand that too many leaves getting together in the drains to go down into the lakes is contributing to algal bloom. And that shuts the lake because the water gets toxic. Um, so once people realise that, they're kind of interested and want to learn more because they didn't realise a leaf was a piece of litter. Um, mm. So that sort of six-week trial, we've brought together a range of organisations who are based in Canberra, Australia, where the pilot's running, um, who are already doing work in a space and helping to sort of amplify their efforts um, and also working with households to say, you know, maybe give composting a go um, because it is a natural way, pick the leaves up, reuse them, and it certainly saves you a lot of money on fertiliser and you get to get a bit active while you're at it. Um, so that's a new initiative that we're trialling now to see if social marketing can help water quality. Um, mm -hmm. And that is predicated, I guess, off other work that we've run in the past. And I think um, the Koala Project has been one of my favourites because <laughs> it was a, a first-run effort at really demonstrating proof of concept that we could literally sell this whole notion without even talking about koalas and the early work there really in community as we were doing our building and co-design work really showed us that um, if you use koala and dog in the same sentence it was very political at the time uh, the koala protection movement were making dog owners feel bad um, dog owners themselves when we did co-design work were really clear they were like we don't want this to happen um, mm. We need to so, know so can what I to just do. can I can I just take a step back? So, so the problem that you were trying to solve was that there were lots of dogs attacking koalas in the wild. It's a, essentially. So the koala has a couple of um, key risks. One's disease. Humans, none of us in the community can 
other than spotting for it and learning how to see it, um, it is a health issue for koalas. The way we look after their habitat is an issue and then the way we drive and then the one I didn't know anything about before we started the project were dogs. Um, and that's because a dog, when it's left in the backyard at night, its natural instinct is to chase. And a koala, when it moves, and koalas do roam, particularly in mating season, like the boy goes looking for a girl, um, mm. the way they move is to come down from a tree and then cross the, the floor to go up to the next tree. Yeah. So if you can imagine a world of a contained neighbourhood yard or a property where it's fenced, if the koala gets in that yard and there's a dog present, there's a fair chance it's not going to end well for the koala. Mm, mm. Um, and they're not built to cope with a dog because one scratch um, leads to basically death. So they don't just, the blood doesn't sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, end of the day. Um, it doesn't, doesn't coagulate. And so the poor mm. thing is actually in strife because it's getting infected and, and bleeding out. Mm. Um, so, yes, we didn't know it was an issue and for us a big challenge to apply our whole co-creation process to because we had to learn how. Like how do you prevent this and, and what mm. might that actually start to look like? So we were out talking to experts and, and doing evidence reviews because that's one of our standard approaches. Who's done something similar elsewhere that we can learn from? And not yeah. surprisingly, not too many parts of the planet had dealt with koala and dog attacks. So we kind of widened the scope of the review work and said, well, how about wildlife and domestic pet interactions? Mm. And I could put it to you, can you guess which pet does the most damage? And what we'd picked up were cats and birds. So yeah. it turns out that our domestic other fairy friends that we love sometimes, the cat, is out there running them up, doing a fair bit of damage. And most mm. of the interventions were all about collars and bells. Um, but none of them were really about community and the people, like the dog owner or the cat owner. Um, and that's where we knew we had our work cut out for us because we had to learn and learn fast. Um, so getting out, talking to people to understand what might help motivate them was the very big part of the early work we did. So it was months to learn how to maybe combat it and deal with it. We ran a pilot and demonstrated you can actually train dogs to run away from a koala. Um, so there's actually an ability that the dogs can be trained through the way they smell. Um, so we learned a lot and it was all demonstrated to us and I could definitely give you the full deep down, but I don't think we need to go that far. Um, <laughs> no. And so for us, the, the pilot program was to just really demonstrate proof of concept. Could we run a training program and embed that skill into the training so that when people popped in to understand, you know, how they might be able to stop their dogs from barking or how to get it to sit and walk nicely on a lead we just snuck koala aversion into that training program as well to have dogs graduate with extra abilities basically that's and, and as a dog owner and lover that is a um a valuable thing if someone said i mean koalas aside that that you know training is something that all dog owners really want as well i think so it's you're tapping into something that's already there in terms of a, a, a viable marketing sort of opportunity come and get free training for your you know for your dog um is, is did you find that is that something that, that well, in this pilot all over? in this pilot it wasn't even free so we actually asked people to pay for it so that was us really testing the full yeah. um, marketing process essentially because marketing isn't just communicating and, and offering a promotional program it is typically here's the replacement behavior we would like you to do 
and mm. our team were pretty passionate that maybe actually demonstrating that people are willing to pay for this, um, acknowledging there might be some who are challenged and can't, um, but a competition can fix that for a chance to win a free uh, training opportunity. Um, that was our way of just demonstrating for sure you could almost have social enterprises running that combat and deal with this mm. problem. So um, getting a 40% reduction in deaths over the three and a half years we were working in that community was our sort of demonstrated impact of just what's possible and our also, you know, just to get back to the earlier conversation around funding and, and just, I think, learning. Um, mm. 40% is great but there was still 60%. So, you know, there was yeah. still more uptake and work needed uh, to be run and done to extend those rates and try and protect every koala that is potentially having an interaction. Um, and so that goes back out to everybody understanding what the risks are, um, but also having good, clear, open conversations about what we can do. And when I go back to the really early work in that project, like the one thing the dog owners said to us, which was such a good point was, it's not just koalas. My dog chases other things too. And no one really wants the yeah. dog just running away chasing and not coming back. Mm. So, mm. you know, if you can teach me how to prevent all of that so that my life becomes a bit easier because the dog is just recalling every time, mm. um, life does improve because you can work with your creature better by learning more about dogs and reading their behaviour and understanding them i've learned so much over the years I, I would have thought that maybe i was actually you know my dog sits and stays and comes back most of the time mm. um but i've learned so much just working with some of the expert trainers it's amazing how much a dog can do and we don't yeah. give them anywhere near the credit they probably deserve it's phenomenal i'm going to speak to you after because i think i might i might benefit as well here sharon um and before we move on to um sort of questions outside of your projects i just wanted to uh, pick up on another couple so go food was one and the other one was blurred minds these are two particularly interesting sounding um projects that, have, that i think listeners will really sort of enjoy because they're from a public health audience and and health and, and academia and, and industry but um could you give us a brief overview of those two because i think they're really interesting projects yeah, there's some of the earliest work that came to be um, as the centre was forming down here, where I say down under. Um, and Blurred Minds was um, funded um, on the back of a, a, a person who just thought maybe there's a better way to do this than education. Um, mm. Teacher by background and just kind of thought maybe this marketing thing might have something to offer. And so it kind of rolled the dice on us even before we were a centre and a thing. Um, and gave us a, a proof of concept sort of pilot project and said, you know, can you apply marketing to change the way adolescents think about alcohol? Mm. And the whole project of Blurred Minds grew and evolved from there and it became uh, funded by the Australian Research Council. We ran two randomised control trials and today work is ongoing as we convert it um, into an online delivery format on the back of the fact that there's funding constraints always and, and need for this work. Um, we've demonstrated we can moderate how adolescents think about alcohol. We can change conversations between parents and their adolescents around alcohol drinking. Um, and so the program emphasises a lot of strategies and ways that um, people can say no, so that we're not 
promoting an abstinence uh, don't drink approach but maybe for those times that you just don't feel like it and adolescence is probably a peak moment where the social pressure is incredibly high yeah and so helping adolescents with a whole host of different ways that they could potentially um, if they don't want to say no and so across the trials we demonstrated how we could play games and through those games the, the, the teaching happens so mm-hmm. there's a, a game that um, essentially teaches the notion of standard drinks and so the students playing the game and pouring the perfect pour and so that's just one example of one of the specific sort of learning outcomes that kicks in because the different alcoholic beverages have different alcohol ratios standard drinks is your way of actually sort of measuring if you've gone too far um, and so helping just get that notion embedded um, along with other games that have been serially developed over time. And I don't know if you have this show in the UK, but who wants to be a millionaire? Um, Sort of like a game style sort of questions get shot out and you've got to come up with the answer. And so Timo Dietrich, who now leads the program, actually developed this particular game and then put students into teams and in the classroom when he's out there delivering they would be competing with each other to win this game Mm. and watching them do that and to compete and they're having so much fun while they're doing it just teaches you how much more we can actually engage people they're having fun and they don't even realize they're doing the learning Um, so there's no doubt that the program changes knowledge but our ultimate outcome goal was to get a little bit beyond sort of just embedding knowledge into people but to actually start to change the way they think about it to maybe make them think that drinking too much just isn't cool so um, it's been a a long-standing project that resulted in a, a virtual reality house party game and in that I've never seen kids line up with so much excitement to get back into the classroom. Like it's, you know, 15 minutes before the end of lunch and they're standing there waiting to come in because we obviously leave the really fun stuff until the end. (laughs) Good marketing. In that sort of game, they're they're left and the way you use your sight um, dictates which choice you make. Do you say yes to the drink or no? And it's essentially like a choose your own adventure. So based on whether you're taking the drinks or not, the outcome starts to change. So do you end up sort of passed out, blacked out, missing out, people laughing at you? Or do you end up, you know, whether it's a a guy's story and he's getting the girl or the girl's looking great and getting more friends, whatever the outcomes Mm -hmm. are, they're very dictated based on the choices that are actually made. So our team developed that here in Australia uh, and again, Timo sort of led the development of the virtual reality. And then subsequent to that, we've had uh, another team over in Denmark build a better and stronger sort of story off the back of, at the time for us, what was a bit of a world first. So, yeah, it's been a very fun adventure, that one. Yeah. And if people want to see some of that stuff, because, I mean, there'll be people who are listening who are from, a you know, who are working in alcohol, um, drug drug and alcohol here in, in the UK and probably elsewhere. Um, where Where can they go to see that? So all of the um, detail is on the Blurred Minds website. So Blurred Minds is all one word, .com.au, or alternatively look myself up or Dr. Timo Dietrich here at Social Marketing at Griffith, um, so Griffith Mm. University. We're always happy to shoot out, you know, access to materials. There are um, lessons that have been built for teachers so that you can download materials Students can access games. Um, So that is something that we have people who come in from Turkey, the US, um, Mm. world over, 
if it's got some relevance and they just want to take a component, it's freely available and there for use. So we are more than right. happy if people want to engage with some of those materials. They're there, what's still running works, and we're currently in the process. And I shouldn't really say we, but Timo is actually currently in the process of updating a lot of the materials still today. So mm. new and better uh, and, we'll, and faster is coming your way. Great. Great stuff. Uh, so go and check that out now. But I'll, I'll put the link, um, Sharon, into the into the show notes so people can access that easily, uh, as well as they're listening to the show. Um, can I just ask about that? Because I, I, as I started to read it, it, it started making me think about um, the scared scared straight program in the states, um, and I was thinking how you know is that a consideration when you're designing a project like that that you're not just going to raise the profile of alcohol to people who previously wouldn't have really thought about it that much did you did you think about that and how did you avoid that that sort of phenomenon because obviously that didn't work in the states all early iterations of the project as we started building it um by the time timo started his phd we were segmenting the students because by then we had sort of two thousand people that we delivered to Mm. Um, we could actually break them down for who's abstaining. So from 14 to 16, who's not really drinking at all. We then yeah. had moderate drinkers and then we had what we called the binge drinkers. Um, yeah. So we had three very distinct groups. Um, when Timo ran co-design work, what each group was looking for is different. Um, abstainers do want to be told that drinking is bad for you and they want the scare mm -hmm. stories and all of the negative stuff. Um, but the reality was that this, the cohort we really wanted to reach the most were binge drinkers and also moderate drinkers who are moving fast towards that sort of binge stage. Like yeah. they showed very similar sort of mindsets and attitudes and other sort of psychographic uh, things in the segmentation work. Yeah. And so from our standpoint, we didn't want to suddenly have the abstainers all excited and wanting to drink. So you want to hold them out of, of where they're at. Um, but at the same time, keeping the moderates wanting to almost stay moderate and trying to bring the binge drinkers back. Um, so I think by not sort of reverting to telling people no, and this is bad for you, but actually taking that real solution sort of focused, mm. um, you could see that the outcomes in our trials were delivering the best outcomes for the binge drinkers and they were maintaining the other groups or actually having a, also bringing them back down. So. We were very conscious that you, the last thing you want to do is make drinking exciting and promote mm. it. So there were individual games getting tested for what outcomes and what changes they would trigger. Um, and so, as, you know, for example, we had a student who did an honours project and, and looked at two specific games to see which one's moving the needles in which direction because there was yeah. so much going on across a day of delivery. Um, breaking it down into component parts, making sure that things that stay in the program work were a big part of the sort of evaluation building work we had to do. Yeah, it's it's really interesting um, going into all that detail, um, Sharon. It's and the pro the project is actually really interesting, and and I. And I um, we know what the, we use VR um, in, in our work with teenagers because for the very reason that you just sort of mentioned mm. that you know, the fun stuff, if you keep that, keep that back, it does bring people along on the journey, doesn't it? Um, right. Having that type of thing. It really does. And you can't mimic without taking something real into the classroom in any, any other mm. way. So from the moment that um, Timo came in and sort of said, I really want to try and do this, I'll make it happen. I was left thinking, I don't think we have an alternative because it's not like we're going to create house parties in schools. Like, that's not mm. going to be cool. Um, how do you get close to that? And then can that deliver the outcomes we actually want to see? So I feel very passionate about the more 
experience people can have. Um, sometimes the better the outcomes get, but then you've got to get them to try them before they buy. So that's the challenge always yeah. inherent in any marketing. But I, but I think it's interesting, you, you're sort of leveraging the, um, what we know is important to, to young people, like being laughed at has got to be one of the worst things for, um, well, for most people, actually. The fear of being laughed at is a disproportionately yeah. um, sort of limiting fear, but, but particularly in young people. And so demonstrating that that, that's, that can often be the case if you're the one that's sort of out of it, etc., is is really, you know, how do you... It sounds like it would be effective to me. How do you measure that that is one of the things that is particularly effective? Well, it comes down to, um, in our case on the trial program, um, we had different outcome expectancies around um, a lot of the alcohol research. And we're very fortunate we've got great partners over at the University of Queensland who are experts in that field. Um, Mm. So to understand more about what everyone's expecting from alcohol drinking and then to build the storylines to change those expectancies was essentially the work Right. that went on and the um, psychologist team were also sort of looking across the scripts and, and helping us to see what other unintended consequences and things would arise. So from how we would actually shape and, and where it went. So there was a lot of emphasis that went into the, the planning to actually build the stories, um, to actually get at some of the key concerns that people actually have. And again, it goes back to if you're doing a replacement here, which is maybe rather than saying yes to the alcohol, you're saying no, you've got to really give people good reasons why the no is actually an option. So that instead of, mm. it's almost like demarketing what expectations would have been around drinking the alcohol. Yeah, yeah. Amazing, fascinating stuff. Um, so if I can move us on, um, Sharon, to the, so this show is Real World Behavioural Science and we're saying that social marketing is is akin to or similar to behavioural science. Do, do you think that it's being used, behavioural science in general or social marketing, effectively at the moment in the industry or do you still feel like we've got a lot of work to do in, in pushing this agenda, pushing it forward? I actually think we've got a lot of work to do in making it very clear what works and what doesn't work. Um, there's a lot of things out there getting called behaviour change or behavioural science. And I know it's a bit of a blend of the many different sort of science backgrounds that are out there because there'll be psychologists out there saying they're behavioural scientists and, and economists um, and the list sort of just goes on. But have we really hit a formula yet where we can hand practitioners a checklist and say, these are the things you should be doing because at heart, most of these programs and projects actually need a cohort who opt in and engage and stay doing and and being involved in whatever the initiative actually is and i really think um, we certainly ourselves when we pick up some of what they call the behavior change theories like nine times out of ten when we pop them up and surveying and we're testing them inside the work we do because that's some of just the science that we get up to in the background they Mm. don't work And it's surprising how little they're working. So I'm left understanding today that maybe sometimes the effort still is we could be using resources better. So rather than spending money trying to do this, we could be doing that, but that's where we still have to get a lot better now, I think, at at coding that and being really clear about where money should go to get what outcomes. Yeah, and have have you found yourself... Um, retrospectively looking back at things that have worked and trying to apply 
uh, or learn what what is driving that what behavioral theories are driving that because we've certainly experienced I, i'm of the same opinion as rory sutherland which is good ideas come from all sorts of different places sometimes they work and we don't know why sometimes great ideas don't work and we don't know why um and so a good you know a good portion of my career i've spent prospectively thinking about how to apply behavior change theories in all the different interventions that we run but another a definitely equal amount has been retrospectively going why did that work so well and having to sort of work backwards from that and then sort of apply that evidence base in reverse almost and then prospectively after that once we've worked it out well, you, you asked me a great question because obviously I had my world before I became an academic and mm. I used to be a practitioner and I used to do things. And I didn't necessarily, if you'd sat me down and forced me to put that into a nice clear process for you, I might not have been able to do that that well. So inherently I knew there was an art. There's something magic that happens if you can listen well and give people what they want. So that's essentially one of the true core things that my training in marketing had taught me. And so then I came into this academic world and my early stuff as I was learning the, the, the art of being a scientist, which I shouldn't say art now, but learning how to actually put work out there and have my peers review it and, and getting it out there and, and having some credibility. There was this one word that kept coming at me and it was, where's your theory? And so I just naturally started to gravitate towards commonly used theories and started to pick them up and just roll them out into work. And that's where I started to learn that those theories don't work, which I probably kind of knew because practically I was not using them at all. And that's where, from a, a standpoint, I think across the last 10 years of work, we started to actually go, well, hang on, what is the process? What are we applying? And what is the sequence of activities that we do? And then ultimately the more we can test now for if we've got them all running and we are seeing this across some of our evidence review work, do more of the social marketing benchmarks. So if you just look up the UK National Social Marketing Centre benchmarks, they've got eight things you should do if you're a social marketer. Yeah. Do more of those, behaviour change is more likely. But still codifying what that is and unpacking that is still a bit of a challenge for people because mm. some people will use theory and they're using different ideas. Some people will use something like insight and they're actually talking about different things. And so I think our process, um, I mean, I was taught in business terms that one in 10 ideas succeed. So I learned really early in my training, you just have to start and you've got to put it out there and then you've just got to keep doing it until you get it right. And yeah. so I was always a bit shocked when we started to apply some of the, what I was doing in this change space, that it always was working. I was expecting to fail more often um, and that was interesting for me too. So I've started to learn that if we can really listen to people and make it happen for them, we can realise the change that whoever is behind the work wants to actually see. Um, but that is a bit of people and politics and, and some of that's a bit difficult to navigate in this space because there's so many operators trying to do things and we mm. don't do it, instead of having one big organisation, which is what's happening commercially, like you do it well and your competitor buys you out, we tend to actually go and create a new agency and a new something, another initiative, and we're not really banding it together enough. So I think the more we do that, the, the stronger we'll get. Yeah, no, agreed. Um, there's certainly, to go back to some of that, what you're saying there, that there's, there's certainly an issue with the nomenclature that exists here of who means what when when they say the same things you know um and 
and also of buzzword using buzzwords and and you know particularly in the well from my own experience in the world of tendering for work for example you look at the the use of buzzwords without the ability to describe the nuance underneath it and all of a sudden people like commissioners in our industry for example are buying stuff that they're just not getting because they haven't they haven't really given the space to really unpack what people mean when they say that and and, and that we i think we misunderstand the importance of that nuance uh, and and understanding that we have fidelity in terms of the, the same things that we're using um you know the same words that we're using um and I, I, I'm particularly taking it. I don't know if you've read or listened to um, Rory Sutherland's book, uh, Alchemy, but it's exactly what you're describing, the, the sort of alchemical practice that happens in, in the... And I think you should stick with the art part of the, what you describe because there's an absolute art to communicating science for one thing, but also um, not being snobby about where good ideas come from and, and you know, parking, parking any, any preconceived notions of just pure science um because although there are lots of people who think that way i don't think they're the people that are doing things in the real world and that's what this show is actually all about and that's why i think you've been a a a fantastic guest actually sharon for it because it's all about application in the real world and taking things that work and making them sort of you know apply in places that matter so social marketing for me is um I, I you know it's a, it's a fundamental um, part of what we do and it's something that i think is really important um for lots of people to consider so for listeners who haven't looked into or, or heard a lot about social marketing i think it's a really good opportunity to go and look into some of that stuff and and if they did want to do that where, where would you recommend they go um sharon if you if there was a few things that you could point people towards what would it, what would they be we had um so we'll do a bit of just hideous self-promotion but we did put up a course online in FutureLearn called um, Social Change How Can Marketing Help it's Mm -hmm. short but at least it gives you exposure to some of the thinking and the ideas Um, I think a a long-standing go-to is the UK's uh, National Social Marketing Centre who has case studies and tools that people can download and resources they can use and Jay Kassira over in um, Canada had a website called Tools of Change and in that features a lot of case studies, um, which can be really nice for people who are just trying to look for something that's similar that they might be working on, whether it's you know flu vaccines or uh, physical mm. activity. So it's sort of like by like different area. And another operator who has uh, materials is Doug McKenzie Moore. And on his uh, website, he offers a free book on community-based social marketing. And there are a lot of people I meet who that resonates with them because it, it speaks in very much a psychology sort of processy kind of way and gives five steps. Um, and so there's different trainings out there. Um, we also as a team put up some uh, a, a course for traffic and that's in the space of wildlife protection. Um, mm-hmm. So again, if you just step away from what the context is, marketing's applied across any, whether it's environment or health or, or social change. Um, so there's a few resources that won't cost a cent and then from there you know bespoke training can't hurt um, getting a coach having someone come in or help you as you build your next campaign can be a great way to sort of pick it up on the job or mm. going to study and and literally you know get some extra training because um, marketing i mean i learned it over the course of a three-year degree um, and then again over years of practice so it's not something that you just pick up and suddenly do there is an art to it and then it mm. is part you know it's half art and half data so it's 
if you've got a bit of a, a clear data or even scientist mind, you can actually succeed if you've got a bit of that blend because good marketing takes both. And the way I describe it is data's great, but it's only looking backwards. And it's the yeah. intuition and knowing what should happen next and learning how to find that. And that's where we've started to code some of what we do to go, look, it is something anyone can do. It doesn't just take a creative mind, but it is being prepared to do something different because behaviour change means you can't do what you've always been doing. And that's the blunt reality of change. We have to do something differently. And that takes courage because sometimes we can't see what that looks like and you just have to jump in and make it happen. Yeah, and I think an understanding, that a lot of people, when you mention the word creative, a lot of people just go, oh, I'm not creative. And they, they back away from that immediately. And, and all right, they might not be, um, you know, master marketers, they might not be Saatchi and Saatchi, but that doesn't, you, you can still think, yeah. you know, look at, the, look at the, the, the groups that you're working with and look at what matters to them, listen to them mm. and think, well, what, 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 you know, speak to them about what they, what they want to see, what they want to um, experience and what they're, what they're really looking for outside of the thing that you're talking about. So if it was obesity or if it was drug and alcohol or koala bears or whatever it is, I think if you can do that, that thing that you mentioned of stepping back from that and thinking what are the, what are the broader context in which those things exist, then you have a great starting point to then just think creatively, you know, even if you're not a massively creative person, um, to be able to sort of put something interesting together. And I think the other thing, based on what you're saying, is if you are in a position to be um, working on or supporting or funding something like this, is that courage to know it's not all going to work out first time and there's going to be mistakes made, but there's also investment in that general sort of building the, the consciousness around something, not just I've put something out and I have to see results immediately. That, that, that takes courage to do that and you've got to manage expectations internally. Um, so yeah, that's Sharon, it's brilliant to talk to you about all this stuff. I think I could talk to you all day. In fact, I might see if I can keep you on afterwards for a moment. Um, but but what, if people want to get hold of you personally, are you on social media? And where can they go to look at some of your work that you've been involved in? So my work's featured across our website, so the Social Marketing at Griffith webpage. And you can definitely go there and see the current projects and future projects. Um, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn. So my Twitter handle is RundleSR. Um, LinkedIn profile, always happy to chat. Um, even if I can't get back straight away, I'll, I'll set expectations and, and get back to you in good time because the heart is there to, to help sort of deliver a little bit more. If I could put myself on the spot, I'd like to see a bit more of marketing getting rolled out across more of the health and, and social change efforts. It has a lot to offer. Right. I, I can attest to that we've been we've been working hard to get this interview in for a year and a half so um i i I'm, i can attest to the fact that you've, you've got the heart to keep going with this stuff and spread the word so um sharon i just want to say thanks for your time i really appreciate it and i think that um again this show is all about diversity and bringing people in from all, all manner of different ends of the the spectrum from marketing data you know academia industry and i think you sit in a really interesting space between creativity marketing and academia and I think that's something that health really really needs and um, you know and, and government generally needs to be able to sort of move move the needle uh, in terms of managing expectations and understanding how to really create sustainable behavior change so thank you for everything that you're doing and um, thank you for your time I really appreciate it oh, it's a pleasure thank you so much for asking me and having me along I've enjoyed it
Okay, I just wanted to say thanks again to Sharon for a brilliant contribution to the show there. Uh, I'm sure that everyone will agree that Sharon's got a really interesting approach and the social marketing methods could be applied really, really fruitfully to health and well-being and interventions both upstream and downstream. So something that we should all be considering uh, using a little bit more. Please do get in touch with Sharon if you're interested in her projects because there are some really, really great ones on her website, which is Griffith University website. So go on and check them out today. Uh, we'll be back again next month with the Professor of Health Psychology and the Director of the Centre for Behavioural Science and Applied Psychology at Sheffield Hallam University, uh, Professor Maddie Arden, and also the Director of Public Health for Sheffield, Greg Fell, who have both been working together on linking the academic world to the real world through the coronavirus pandemic. And this one is well worth tuning in for. Lots of great insights coming out of that interview. In the meantime, don't forget that you can join the BSPHN at www.bsphn.org.uk for just £25 if you're working or £10 if you're not working or if you're a student. You can also sign up for my blog at www.busybodies.com forward slash blog for my views on public health, behaviour change and on running a company with the express aim of doing meaningful work and having fun whilst doing it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review on iTunes. It will take less than a minute and may help someone discover the great work that's going on around the world in behaviour change. Also, if, you will, if you've got time to subscribe on, on um, the app that you're listening to this on and be sure to tell people through social media or just share with your colleagues, that'd be really, really helpful and I appreciate it a lot. If you want to get hold of me, I'm on at Stu underscore King underscore HH and I look forward to hearing from you. Yeah.